Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle and thank you for joining us at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. You can also check out the podcast at Apple, Google, Spotify, Good Pods, pretty much wherever you listen to podcasts. And the uh, Sonic Cinema YouTube channel though, it also has exclusive, also has interviews as well as quick take uh reviews of select movies that is the sonic cinema podcast on youtube but you can always listen wherever you listen to podcasts you can also check us out at patreon.com backslash sonic cinema there you can get older new watch reviews just brief little write-ups of older movies that watch for the first time can get early access to movie reviews that are going to be on this site as well as a new series called Leaving the Collection, where I look at a movie from my DVD collection, and that I kind of feel like has run its course in my collection, whether it's something that I don't really watch anymore, or it's just something I'm not really interested in having in my collection anymore. And I give it one spin, and I talk about it, and that is at patreon.com backslash sonicinema. So this October, we have had a terrific lineup, if I do say so myself, of guests and horror movies to talk about. And, you know, it it wouldn't, but I will say, it would not be October and discussing horror without Phil Faso. We talked earlier about the uh, Netflix uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, We also went to almost real-life horrors, if you think about with Italian neorealism. Here, though, we are going back 40 years to discuss the horror of 1982 with three movies in particular that are actually pretty damn good. Uh, Phil, thank you, as always, for joining me. Thank you for having me, bro. Brian, it was a pleasure to be around. So I, I'll admit I was a bit young, to see horror in 1982. I would have been about four or five when some of these movies came out. So, but what was it like as a horror fan in 1982 to watch these movies to start out? So I was 10 years old when, um, when 1982 rolled around, summer of 82. And, uh, I remember seeing commercials for The Thing and being terrified. I went to see Poltergeist. I'm pretty sure my mom took us. Creepshow, I don't remember when I saw, but the whole thing was, I remember seeing The Fright. It's funny because I used to be a huge fan of The Fright. I might have told you this story before. I used to be a huge fan of The Friday the 13th movies. So we'd go over to my aunt's house, and I had a couple older cousins, so they would... um they would be watching them on cable and I'd be terrified hiding behind the couch. And then we'd come back, you know, a half an hour, 40 minute trip to my house, my parents' house. And then we had this huge two acres of woods behind the house. And I was always terrified at the prospect that Jason was going to come out of the woods to get me. <laughs> so, so that um, shaded a lot of my horror experience. Uh, again, that was the time when you had Showtime and, and HBO and you have all kinds of you know, midnight movies, you know, stuff like that running at night. Um, so I remember specifically with the thing because my mom, it's, 
I don't know why she hooked on to that movie so much. It came on cable, so it didn't do very well when it came out. And then it came on cable, I'm going to say probably sometime in 83. I don't remember exactly when, what the release window for cable was. But she watched it one time, and then we watched it with her. And I was terrified, amazed, in wonder. I found it glorious and all those things. And then, like, every time it came on, my mom would watch it. So there was one time when I it was, it was like 2 in the morning, and it was a school night. And I woke up, and I walked down, bleary-eyed, and wiped my eyes in my pajamas and all that. And I walk into my living room, and my mother's on the couch at 2 in the morning watching the thing. So, so I have some very interesting memories about that one. The scene in 82, because I was only 10 at the time, you know, it's, it's not... I can't really tell you what it was for older people except for my cousins because my cousins were always going to horror movies. But horror back then was a big, big thing. You know, you had the slasher boom a couple of years in at that point. And as you're going to see from just the three movies today we discussed, there was a whole just... I think we discussed this in one of the other years where we discussed maybe 97. Horror is all over the board at this time. Yeah. There's all kinds of stuff. And then Poltergeist was interesting because Poltergeist was, it's a horror movie. It's a PG horror movie, which normally is a detriment, but not in this case. And, you know, horror. So it's interesting because Poltergeist was just a huge, huge movie. And everyone was seeing it, you know. And it was like you could talk to your neighbors, you could talk to the kids at school because everybody saw it and knew about it. So, yeah, the scene at 82, I mean, we're going to talk about some very good flicks, not like pieces or any of that stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, the horror is all over the board, but you get some really high-end stuff here, especially the three flicks that we're going to talk about today. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think of the movies from, I think of the horror movies from 82 that I've watched, these three are by far the cream of the crop. I mean... You know, I was, you know, a, a few years in like 86, 87 is when I had my Friday 13th phase and I saw the first six of those. So naturally part three was part of that. I wasn't necessarily aware of the 3D origins at the time because of the fact that, I mean, you know, 3D home media wasn't a thing at the time. And then, but I also, you know, it's funny catching up with, uh, catching up with movies over the past 20 years, especially like horror movies, as far as, you know, ring them from Netflix or stuff like that. It's, you know, listening, especially with this year, listening to, uh, 80s all over when they were talking about, um, the early part of the slasher boom, you really don't no, you really don't, it's really hard to kind of get your head around if you didn't necessarily live through it, just how much the influence of Halloween and Friday 13th had on the landscape of horror at that point. And, I mean, you have the three films we're going to talk about almost feel like anomalies, really, in terms of what they're doing with horror and how they approach horror. Sure, and you know what? It's it's very interesting because today we're going to talk about a remake of a 50s flick, and this one involves aliens, an alien force that basically absorbs people from the tread and replicates them. We're going to talk about 
basically an 80s version of what would be a traditional ghost story. Yeah. And then we'll talk about an anthology, which is a lot of fun. So, so yeah. we'll, it's, I like this. I like the films that we chose here because we're getting a melange of a bunch of different things here and three different styles of film, three different directors and three different great directors, I should say. Oh, Although, absolutely. You know, outside, of, outside of a couple of films, you may be debatable on uh, Toby Hooper's greatness, but certainly a master of horror there. So that should be fun. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, yeah, this is, this is, it's funny because of the fact that this is going to be the first time really uh, any of these, uh, any of these, directors are going to be discussed in any degree of length on the podcast. Like I, we haven't really gotten to these filmmakers yet. I mean, they've been mentioned in passing, but ultimately speaking, this is kind of their, uh, this is kind of their uh, breakout as far as talking about them on the podcast. I mean, we've talked about these, we've talked about each of these movies before. I mean, I know the episode before this, uh, you know, we we brought up uh, the thing was brought up and Creepshow was brought up as well. But I mean, you know, not in as deep a way as what we're going to be talking about. So let let us go ahead and get started with these three. We're going to start with John Carpenter's The Thing, which came out in June of 1982, which was, a, it came out around three weeks after Poltergeist and two weeks after E.T. I think that is, that is definitely an important context to put its release in because it really gives you a good idea as to why, a big part of the reason why this movie was not a success at the box office. Re- well, here's the thing. Okay, I should say, here's the thing that's funny. Um, on the, because I bought the DVD, I bought a DVD player in 2000, my very first DVD player, and this was, I think, the like second or third DVD I picked up. And I was all about ripping into all the extras and that. And Dean Condy, the director of photography, the DP, specifically says, hey, you know what? A couple weeks earlier, a much kinder, gentler alien came around. Yeah. And, you know, uh, he, he thought that E.T. was a big part of the reason that, you know, people chose to go see stuff that was going to be with a happy alien, as opposed to the alien, you know, eating people and, and replicating. Mm-hmm. I can see that, definitely, but I also, like, so it's weird, because the thing all of a sudden is, like, everyone's talking about the thing 40 years later, like, it's a great movie. Now, I'd like to brag about being way ahead of the curve, and I think all these people are posers, and screw them. <laughs> to be honest, um, I always thought the thing was a great film, but again, it's about as hardcore into the ultra violence as you could get with a movie at that time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is graphic beyond belief. Mm-hmm. You know, you go to a Friday the 13th movie, you know, some people are going to get stabbed, some people are going to get hung, arrows, pitchforks, whatever. You go to the thing, and it's a whole different experience from anything you've ever seen before, and it's so graphic. Now, Rob Bottin should be blessed for putting together basically the greatest special effects in any horror movie ever. So let's grant him that. Um, but this is not an easy sell, even if you're not matching it up against E.T., you know? Oh, no, you're absolutely right. Um, and, yeah, I mean, let's, let's, go out, let's go ahead and say that Rob Bottin, I, I would agree with you and say this is probably, this is 
probably the greatest effects a horror movie has had. And it is so... And I think a big part of it is because of how radically different it is from what we typically consider special effects and makeup effects in horror. Because, I mean, yeah, you, you look at... Yeah, Friday the 13th Part 3 is traditionally is violent in the same way that those slasher movies were violent at the time, but it's nothing compared to what we're seeing, which is basically, which is basically biology just twisting itself in, into different shapes. And it, it, it really takes the idea of what we kind of see in Ridley Scott's alien as far as you're not quite sure of what, this creature is you don't get a clear sense of this creature and even in the thing you don't see a definitive look of what like the thing would normally look like you just see it within the context of the things that it inhabits and that is that's a big part of what is so deeply unsettling in this movie well, the scary part is the paranoia. The thing could be anyone and anything on that camp. Yeah. And you're not going to be able to tell. I mean, they come up with a blood test, which is absolutely brilliant. You know? Yeah. But the thing is that, you know, the carpenter said on that DVD that I bought that, you know, he, he didn't want a guy in a rubber suit. Mm-hmm. He sounds like he liked Alan. Alien, but he said again, you know, Alien was great, but Alien was one more time a guy in a rubber suit, and he didn't want that. So we hired Botine with this concept that, hey, the thing can be anything, not just from Earth, but anything from all these different planets that it's traveled. You know, and it goes around, and it's just a, it's, it's so, it's so grotesque and so frightening at the same time. But it's really like the the, the fact that when the thing isn't even on the screen, when you don't have monster gross outs, that it's still just this engaging, you know, adrenaline rush because you don't know who the thing is. You don't know who to trust. You don't know who you can stay with. And nobody should be left alone with anybody else. It's just like, it's crazy. It's, it's, it's a paranoid wet dream pretty much. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it, and it's, it's, the fact that this film, well, okay, first of all, I, I have to say it's it's kind of interesting that the I I find it like interesting that Predator basically ripped off the exact same opening shot that the thing oh, has, which yeah. is basically you see the you see the spaceship, you know, in the in space, and then you see it landing in the you know laying on earth and stuff like that from from space and it's like that is exactly the same thing you see in aliens and predator the first scene the first time i ever saw predator the first thing i thought was oh my god they they just did the the, the opening from the thing <laughs> <laughs> but um i i think the fact that this this movie starting off with and I mean, I messaged you when I was rewatching it for this episode. Like, the first one of the first things we see in this movie is a helicopter that is shooting at a dog. You don't know why they're shooting at the dog. You you obviously can have your own ideas, but you know, 
why ultimately why are they shooting at the dog? And then, you know, the dog comes up to the uh camp where Kurt Russell and everybody is at and they welcome it, but like they're the the helicopter, the team in the helicopter is still shooting at. So they are shooting at Kurt Russell's team. So that right there, it starts off it starts introducing the whole idea of distrust among humans and lack of communication that I think is going to ultimately uh, be the downfall of these characters in this movie. Absolutely. And the thing is, you know, it doesn't really make any overt political statements, but the whole thing is like, okay, so the 50s one was... You know, the original, the thing from another planet was, I think it came out of the 50s. Yeah, it was 51. You know, yeah, the, the Cold War paranoia there. But here, it's just the whole thing. It, it, it picks up on that element of it that, hey, you can't trust your neighbor. You can't trust your best friend. You can't trust anybody. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, fits into horror rather well. Oh, yeah, and absolutely. You know, and the whole thing is that the seeds of distrust, if these guys had banded together and stayed in the same room and not split up and not worried about anything else, and if they just stood together, and but eventually the thing's going to have to reveal itself, right? Yeah. But they don't do that. Now, mm-hmm. they don't trust each other. Some of them don't like each other. I mean, it's, I think it's 12 guys. You know, when you have 12 men in a camp, Thousands of miles off from anywhere, you're going to have alliances. You're going to have people. It's just human nature. You're going to have people who don't like each other. You're going to have alliances. You're going to have people who are casual with each other, you know? Um, and the thing blows all that up. Yeah. No, and I, I think, I, I think the, thing is, the, the thing that is so effective about this film in particular, the screenplay by uh, Bill Lancaster, who's adapting this story, is the fact that we get to understand all of the characters. We we come to understand who all of these characters are, just in little moments and the ways they interact with each other and things. You know, Richard Mason and the, you know, his, his care for the dog. So it's natural for him that he's going to have. He he's going to respect them as 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 a form of life, and then even when the thing gets into the kennel, it's still he he's still thinking of the dogs first. Yes, he's associated with the dogs. He's like the loner, and he spends time with the animals instead of with um with uh with the rest of the crew there. But then you find out that. That dog that that came from the Norwegian camp has been wandering around the camp all day. So that lays the seeds. I mean, it's just the way it's structured is brilliant. And Lancaster did a great job with the script because there were all sorts of questions about who's available when and who's not here and and all those sorts of things. Where you know it keeps you on your toes, you know. Yeah. Well, and it it also in addition to having having. Following the dog going through the camp is so important because of the fact that it sets up the geography of what of where these people are and really just sets up just how isolated 
from everything they are. And the fact that it's like, if they're going to survive this, they ultimately have to try to trust each other, but you you see how they're not going to be able to either. And it's understandable because of the fact that, you know, at a certain point, you're not going to be able to trust anybody without thinking about the fact that, well, what are the what is that person's motivation in doing this? What is this person's motivation in doing that? You you just need to there's to there's a certain amount of trust that you have to put somebody in. I mean, even it's even if you were taking out most of the horror of this film, it is still a terrific thriller about trust and about people put into an extreme situation who are inevitably going to get on each other's nerves to the point where I don't know if I can trust this person anymore. Well, I mean, that's why Fuchs dies. Fuchs is totally... Once once Blair goes crazy, Fuchs is totally locking down on how to put a plan together. And then he comes across underwear that he thinks is McCready's, and it looks like it's burnt up, and he thinks McCready's been, been um, assimilated. And then they leave it open, but I've always taken it that he took the flare and burnt himself. He didn't want to be caught up in anything like that. Didn't want to be assimilated. And I can't blame the guy at that yeah. point. But there's so much going on. You know, it's just like, and Carpenter keeps the wheels turning and everything moving brilliantly. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, and then the scenes that are the highlights. So you have the dog kennel scene is is insane. So you build up to, I guess it's about, it's probably about 25, 30 minutes in, I would think. Like you've already established a bunch of stuff at that point. So, you know, um, Richard Masur's character there goes to, um, yeah. goes to the kennel and he's going to put the dog away and then he hears something in and you, you see a little bit in the shadows, but you can't really tell what's going on. Mm-hmm. And then he hits, the, he hits the fire alarm and everybody comes out. Richard <laughs> <laughs> Masur has one of the best lines in the movie. Somebody asks him what's in there, and he says, I don't know, but it's weird and pissed off, whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, you just get spectacle when you see the thing. So this dog opens up and it spreads out these crab, giant crab legs, but its head falls off and it splits open. That becomes this other dog thing. Yeah. And it starts shooting out. It's, I feel so bad for the dogs in that scene because it's roping them up and it's shooting fluids at them. And you can tell they're all in a lot of pain while it's going on. And it's going to take over all those dogs. And that's the thing. Mm-hmm. Because later on, when you get to the scene where Blair's trying to figure out with his stopwatch and his 1982 computer, what's how long this is going to take? Basically, within a thousand days, if this thing gets out, it's going to assimilate the entire world. Yeah, and that's going to move on to the next place, the next planet. You know. Mm-hmm. So there are some very tense scenes in here, and then, like I mentioned, the blood test earlier. Which is an absolutely brilliant way to find out who the thing is when you figure out, hey, this thing is a bunch of different parts. And the way that Carpenter directs it, where, you know, it's so tense figuring out what's going on, but there's that misdirect where Childs, I think, Childs is talking to him about how it's a bunch of voodoo bullshit, and he dips the thing in while he's in the middle of shining Childs again on him, and then the blood hops out. I jumped out of my freaking seat the first time I saw that. <laughs> 
I leaped off the couch. I was like, whoa, what the? So, yeah, it's just, uh, so, I mean, it's, it's an exercise in paranoia. And then we can't go through any discussion about the thing without talking about John Carpenter's relationship with Kurt Russell. Yeah. Because Kurt Russell took the role. Carpenter asked him to take it, and he said, okay, well, I agreed to it thinking it was going to be an ensemble piece. And it is in some ways, but then, you know, McCready starts to step out of the shadows and, and he really becomes your main character, your focus here. Mm-hmm. Um, so John Carpenter had directed him at that point in, I believe Elvis was the first time they got together. And have you ever heard of the story why he hired him to play Elvis? No. So some guy who was the casting director or whatever said, hey, listen, I got two guys here. I got a guy who looks exactly like Elvis to a T, but he doesn't sound like him, doesn't look like him, doesn't sound like him, can't sing like him, whatever. And I got this other guy who doesn't look like Elvis at all, but once you're in the room with him and he starts talking, you're going to think you have Elvis Presley in front of you. And that guy was Kurt Russell. <laughs> So he started with he started with him in Elvis, and then the next flick he did was Escape from New York, which came out. It's hard to believe that Escape from New York came out just a year before this. Like that, they crunched a lot. You know, guys like Carpenter used to make a movie a year. I can't imagine oh, yeah. that happening nowadays. With well, production schedules is long, you know. Well, when gaps the, between films and all. Yeah, well, when think about the run that Carpenter had. So he had Halloween in '78. You had Elvis in 79. You had The Fog in 1980. Escape from New York in 81. The Thing in 1982. Christine, Christine in 1983. Right? And then Starman in 84. That's a hell of a run. Yeah. That, that, is, that is a ridiculous run for a filmmaker. And then a couple of years later, he had Big Trouble in Little China with Kurt Russell. Then a couple of they had Prince of Darkness. They had to. They live. And well, wait a minute. What year? Okay, what year was this? I know that they live is eighty eight. I think Prince of Darkness is eighty seven. Yeah, yeah. But well, no, I mean that's went almost almost a decade, almost a decade without having a year off, pretty much. Like, yeah, he basically. Was always, always a John Carpenter movie. Well, when you think about, especially stuff like Escape from New York and The Thing, you think about how technically complex these movies are in terms of the sets, in terms of the visual effects, in terms of all that. I mean, you know, those are not small productions to put on. You know, it's like you... No, it makes not. And the thing, the thing took, I think, over a year to put together. Yeah. From, from the time he got hired till the time it was done. And he was working, Rob Bottin was working seven days a week for like a year. And then like the reason to, so this is a part where Stan Winston does a hand puppet for the dog. Mm-hmm. Like it's the only other, it's the only effect in the movie that's not Rob Bottin. And I'm pretty sure that's the point where Rob Bottin basically had a nervous breakdown. He had, he was, had to be away from two weeks because he was working seven days a week for a year. And you see that as an effects laden film that's not sitting at a computer for 12 hours that's constructing stuff that's being on the set all the time you know he basically had a cop in carpenter's office i think and pretty much slept <laughs> he slept in carpenter's office mm-hmm. but yeah you know those are not 
like Escape in New York is a very technical film. You have all kinds of special effects, not in the same way that they're in the thing, but you have all kinds of special effects. You know, you have digital effects that are simple for, simple for now, consider, can, you know, when you consider now, but back in the day, I mean, that was top-notch stuff he was put on the screen, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, you know, going back to the fact that, like, you have one moment where, you know, it's, it's a hand puppet that Stan Winston does, you you couldn't tell that it goes from one visual effects artist to another. It is so effortless. They both feel part of the organic. same universe. Yeah, and, they're organic. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that is so... I think that's one of the things that's so incredible. And, in you know, and the thing is, one of the things I love about this movie and one of the things I really appreciated rewatching it this time especially was, yes, you, you could do these effects so much easier now than you could back in 1982. They would not be as good. They they would not okay. be as good because of the fact that I the thing I love is when you have the body on the the body on the the uh, table and they are you know trying to do the autopsy and you see the the head pull off and it's like you can tell that it's makeup you can tell that it's makeup effects you can tell it's practical effects. Yeah, you could do that CGI. It wouldn't have that tactile feel that the effects in this movie has. Okay, all you need to do to prove that statement to yourself is watch the 2011 prequel to The Thing. Mm -hmm. Where, I forget which shop did it, but one shop went and did a whole bunch of visual effects and then they said, nope, no one's going to buy this, so we're going to CGI over all of it. And it's terrible. It's garbage. Yeah. No one is going to use that trash with what Rob Bottin did in, in 82. No one. Oh, yeah. Because it's a whole different world. I mean, I'm an old school guy, so I'm not really into, like, visual effects for backgrounds and stuff. That's fine. If you can fill in, you know, I can go outside in my parking lot, throw up a green screen, and make it look like my parking lot's a, a, you know, a forest. That's kind of cool. When you come into visual effects with monsters and stuff, I mean, I'm very old school. I'll take I'll take practical rubber stuff and masks and KY jelly over anything that you're going to do with it on a computer, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, look, the fact of the matter is you're, you're still capable of doing great makeup effects, but chances are nobody, but you know, as with that 2011 movie, nobody is going to say, Oh yeah, these should be done practically. Nobody's going to say that now. They're going to just say, okay, we can do it in the computer. I'm sure they can do some really great stuff in the computer for it. It's not going to have the same feel. It really is not going to have the same feel. It's not going to have the same intensity that Botine's work does here, which is just absolutely unforgettable once you see it. I'll bring up Jurassic Park for a second. So everyone talks about it because Jurassic Park was the first real big movie that broke barriers with, with the whole CGI and digital effects. But you know what? Everyone seems not to talk about Stan Winston built a full-size Tyrannosaurus for that movie. Yeah. So, again, if you blend it in with 
the real stuff, you know, like they, Spielberg does a brilliant job of blending the two together. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have those actual, you know, giant sized dinosaurs, I think you're looking at a different experience even with Jurassic Park. Oh yeah. Now book work is it's it's never been beaten and I don't think it ever will. I don't I can't foresee anyone coming up with the stuff that he did. It's just and it's goopy and it's gory, but it's so technically brilliant. And it's just it's gross to look at, but it's so much fun to look at, you know? Well, and it's because I think a huge part of it is because of the fact that this is a type of creature that we've never seen before. We've never seen, yeah, we've seen aliens before. Like, you know, again, look at Alien. Look at any degree of sci-fi movies that came out, like, before, including Star Wars, Close Encounters, and stuff like that. We've seen aliens before on, on screen. What we haven't seen is something that just hides itself, and then how does it, reveal itself in a way that isn't just like oh this this you know sort of sort of like the symbiote in spider-man 3 or venom where it's like it's it's just a glob of just just a glob of goo that is going that's skittering along the ground this isn't the same thing this is something that is lethal and just it doesn't care about grossing you out its whole intention is to take you as part of its own. And that is what is so extraordinary about the effects here is because of the fact that it's like, even though you don't see the alien in its original form, you understand this alien. Oh, you, you understand what this alien is and what it does. And the thing is that the Norwegians didn't quite get it in time and figure it out. Yeah. So the Norwegians end up getting screwed. And then, you know, so everyone wants to talk about the ending of this film because uh, I, I've i always loved horror movies with dark endings. Yeah. Right? Five out of my six favorites ends with, five out of my six favorite horror flicks end with dark endings, you know, with the, and it goes to something that I've always, I've heard George Romero say this in a number of different interviews that, hey, listen, in horror, there's no sense in knocking over the apple cart if you're going to set the apple cart upright at the end. You yeah. know? And I know everyone wants happiness, and every, well, American audiences are trained to like happy end. But um, you can't get much more bleak than the end of this. No. <laughs> so you have Childs disappears for a while, and then the rest of the camp the, the camp's pretty much on fire at this point. Yeah. Um, and it's, once those fires go out, this is going to go below freezing and there's going to be all sorts of trouble. No one's going to be able to survive that unless, of course, you're a thing. Um, and, you know, the whole thing at the end is, hey, listen, is either one of these guys the thing? Now, I can't see Kurt Russell being the thing because we're following him the whole time. Yeah. I've heard theories that Kurt Russell gets infected. I'm like, I can't possibly see that because we followed him through every step. Like, we've never seen him get infected. Now, I, I'm of the long lines of Childs isn't the thing either, but I also like McCready's way of um, saying it at the end. He's like, hey, listen, um, 
I don't think either one of us is in shape to do anything about it if either one of us is. So let's just uh, hang out for a while and see yeah. what happens. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is, this is a bleak ending, and it's like, I, I have a feeling this, and, you know, it's like going back to E.T., it's like, I'm sure that's another part of the reason why this was not what people wanted and people wanted E.T. is because of the fact that this is ultimately a very dark ending because of the fact that exactly what you said, where it's like, you know, neither of them can necessarily trust that the other's not the thing, but at the same time, you know, I, I like that, and I like that ambiguity that we don't, they don't necessarily know and we don't necessarily know. And they're just going to, I don't know, are they going to wait for each other to die? Or what is what is going to on there? I think that they're going to freeze to death. That's yeah. my personal thing about it. I think that both of them are going to sit there. They're going to finish the bottle of, uh, I think it's J&B that they're drinking. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that once the fires go out, they're going to have about a half an hour to live and then they're going to be frozen together. But, you know, the thing is, looking on the bright side, they probably saved the world. Yeah. So yeah. there's that. Yeah, this so, is, yeah. yeah, that's true. And, um, you know, I, I, have to, I have to mention the terrific soundtrack to this. Uh, Ennio Morricone was the main composer, although Carpenter certainly had some compositions in here as well. Um, so, no, I've always been a little confused by that because if you listen to the, I, I know Morricone is the listed composer, but if you listen to this, the heartbeat, the keyboards, everything, it just sounds like a typical John Carpenter score, you know. So I, I can't say I have a lot of experience with. Well, no, I can't say that either. Morricone, you know, the first thing that pops into my mind is is the Clint Eastwood stuff, right? The spaghetti right. Western. Right, Morricone. And I don't think that's an, an unpopular thing. I think a lot of people would think that when it came to Morricone. And then, like, I know he did Once Upon a Time in America. Like, he was a very popular composer back in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s. Yeah. So what, what's your take on this? Does this sound like a typical Morricone score? Or? I, I've heard enough of Morricone's other work to know that there's definitely the sound of Morricone in this. You can definitely tell that there's okay. some of that traditional... Morricone, uh, Morricone sounds the way he, the way he builds orchestrations. You can definitely tell that that's part of it. Now, I will say it's like you can also definitely tell that there's a lot of Carpenter in here as well. And I think that the end, you know, it's funny because of the fact that I was reading up on it on a uh, Wikipedia, and basically, you know, it's it's one of those cases where Carpenter went to Morricone because he wanted to. He, he wanted to have Morricone compose it. And it, it was probably a matter, fact of matter, that he wanted to focus more on directing this time because of how complex things were. Oh, sure, but, absolutely. And, you know, like we've already said, like he was, he was also probably doing post-production on Escape from New York for a part of this, too. So, I mean, that's probably part of it. But, and, you know, he, he gave... He gave Morricone some ideas. Morricone came up with some of his ideas. And then Carpenter also came up with some of his own ideas. And you you basically, what we're hearing basically is a, uh, 
is a combination of the two because you know I I re I watched uh, Halloween three season of the witch for the first time this year and one of the things that was so striking listening to that was how much of that score reminded me of the thing and it's it's because there are so there were several beats that just remind me of music that i literally just heard in the thing the day or two before well that's one of the things with halloween and halloween too neither one of those movies is directed by carpenter but because his score is there he's you can't you can't not think carpenter when you see those films you know yeah no, absolutely. And um no, I mean I but I, I think it's a beautiful score. It's like, yeah, there there um there there are definitely some uh you know, there there's definitely some great uh there's definitely some great music from both of them. I, I think it 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 does what it wants to do, which is it it emphasizes the low slow burn, but also when it reaches those muted crescendos it's it's just absolutely chilling look we've talked about this before a number of times especially because you're a music guy that you anytime you take a great movie and you add a great score it can only enhance it and this is a perfect example of that the heartbeat thing that they came up with because it plays at the beginning and then it plays over the end credits all the way through is just an amazing it's so simple, but it's so effective. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Yeah, it's just it's just next level stuff. So well, um, I, I good. No, I was gonna say it's funny because of the fact that I mean Kubert did kind of the same thing when he was adapting some of the uh music when he was mixing together some of the music for the shining, he put that same type of heartbeat into some of the music in the shining, especially Especially when uh, Jack or Danny or uh, Halloran are shining in the film, that's kind of those the moments where that heartbeat kind of comes into play on top of the existing classical music they uses. And I mean, th- when used correctly, that type of thing is just so absolutely effective. And I mean, obviously, in both of those cases, it helps when you have a great director like Kubrick or Carpenter who is capable of building tension visually as well and understands that the ways that sound can be used or not used to build tension is is an important part of the process. And I think that thing is also very good like sometimes directors definitely overuse a score. A really great director, especially in like a thriller or a horror movie, knows when not to have any score at all. And yeah. there's a bunch of places in here where you don't hear the music and it just adds to it. Because when the music comes, you know, the variation between music and no music just enhances everything. So, yeah. And we, yeah. And uh, my guest, uh, Becky O'Brien, when we were talking about horror scores, um, couple episodes ago uh we were talking about halloween and we were talking about carpenter um you know the the thing that's interesting about carpenter is that the and one of the things that i love about carpenter as a filmmaker what i've come to love about him as a filmmaker is i've started to really dig into his work is the fact that yes 
I mean, he is to a certain extent, you can sort of there's there can be you could see very much a bit of ego and like, oh, I'm gonna write the music myself. The the fact of the matter is John Carpenter's almost as important a figure in film music history as he is in film history as a director. And I, I think that's one of the things that is so remarkable about him. And one of the things we talked about in that episode when we were talking about Halloween is that, you know, when he when he does go, it we we certainly hope that he he gets the due credit he deserves as one of the great film composers of all time, as well as one of the great filmmakers. Sure. I am totally down with you on that. Totally agree. Yeah. Um, do you have anything else to say about the thing before we move on? No, we can move on. All I'm right. just going to say one more time that I saw it in 1982 for the first time. I watched it. The last time I watched it was a couple months ago. And again, the best horror movies are the ones that will affect you just like they did 20, 30, 40 years ago. And the thing is right in that category, right in that wheelhouse for me. Yeah. And this is one that I've, I've come to absolutely love. I mean, I didn't, I didn't dislike it the first time I saw it. I just wasn't quite sure why I thought about it. But as I've watched it more over the years, it is one that I've come to love and think is just genuinely one of the great films. So when you know everything that's going to happen in a movie that you saw for the first time 40 years ago and the hair is still standing on your arms and your spine is still tingling, that's a quality horror film, right? Yeah. So our next film also came out in the June of 1982. We've already talked about the fact that it came out a few weeks before The Thing, which actually I want... I want to say, in addition to the thing, Blade Runner came out the exact same day, which is just mind-boggling in its own right. Um, that those two Another movies movie came out at the same time. Another movie that was unsuccessful when it came out and now is considered a classic. Yeah, um, June June nineteen eighty two was absolutely loaded uh, because it started in terms of horror with Toby Hooper's. Uh, poltergeist and before we get into this discussion i i would like to i would like to read two quotes regrettably some of the press has misunderstood the rather unique creative relationship which you and i shared through the making of poltergeist i enjoyed your openness and allowing me as writer and producer a wide berth for creative involvement just as i know you were happy with the freedom you had to direct poltergeist so wonderfully through the screenplay, you accepted a vision of this very intense movie from the start, and as the director, you delivered the goods, you performed responsibly and professionally throughout, and I wish you great success on your next project. That was, of course, written by Steven Spielberg. It was an open letter printed in The Hollywood Reporter. Uh, it was printed the week before the movie um, because a lot of people questioned uh, how much, in fact, Toby Hooper directed the film. Now, the next quote that I'd like to bring up is from a great horror director in his own right, uh, Mick Garris, who was a publicist on Poltergeist. 
Toby was always calling action and cut. Toby had deeply in, had been deeply involved in all the pre-production and everything. But Steven is a guy who will come in and call the shots. And so you're on your first studio film hired by Steven Spielberg, who is enthusiastically involved in this movie. Are you going to say, stop that? Let me do this? Which Toby did. Toby was a terrific filmmaker. I don't think it's that Steven was controlling. I think it was Steven was enthusiastic. And nobody was there to protect Toby. But all of the pre-production was done by Toby. Toby was there throughout. Toby's vision is very much realized there. And Toby got credit because he deserved credit, including Steven Spielberg said that. Yes, Steven Spielberg was very much involved. It is a Toby Hooper film. I wanted to quote both of these things out of the way first because I know you and I both never have really uh, accepted the bullshit that, oh, maybe Steven Spielberg directed this and Toby Hooper didn't direct this. Toby Hooper directed this film. <laughs> okay, so we've established on this podcast that we are both tremendous fans of Richard Donner. Yes. Okay. Richard Donner directed... I think we both agree that Richard Donner directed The Goonies, right? Yes. I think we'd also both say realistically that there are Steven Spielberg touches in that film, even with Richard Donner as a established director who had directed, you know, Superman by that point, that there were touches where you could see Steven Spielberg's fingerprints on that as a producer, right? 150%. No one ever, ever argues that Steven Spielberg directed The Goonies. No. No one ever says that. I've never heard anybody make that claim. I've never seen it in print. I've never seen an interview where Richard Donner said he interfered. I've never seen Spielberg say that was my movie, not Donner's, because it's not. Okay? This one gets a lot of that, and I'm sure I know exactly why. Because Toby Hooper at this point was known for a couple of things. Basically, and he still, you know, Toby Hooper's known for a few big things in his career, and the thing that he was known for, probably even more than this, obviously would be the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yes. If you look at that, and you look at the Poltergeist film, obviously there are huge differences in aesthetic quality. Mm -hmm. Okay? I wouldn't argue that. Now, Poltergeist is at times visceral, it can be mean. There's a lot of stuff going on there. But you could tell it's a very well-made, very polished studio film, right? Yeah. Now, if you look at Texas Chainsaw, Texas Chainsaw was basically an indie film. Yeah. Made cheap by a bunch of guys in Texas, you know, using all sorts of, of every cheap, every, every corner cutting you could possibly think that an a indie director, an indie producer would use right mm -hmm. so i think that people see that and if they'd seen me alive at that point you know you step to this and you say ah well there's no way that toby hooper could have directed this thing right he doesn't first off spielberg's gonna overrun him and second off he's just not capable but people seem to forget that if you watch salem's lot which was made in 79 that was his first that was his first real foray. It was a TV movie, but that was the first time he wasn't doing anything indie, I guess. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. 
you look at that, that's a very competently made film with sets and, you know, all kinds of, you know, it's polished, it's nice looking, it, it cuts nicely from scene to scene. It's not a Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So I think that Hooper was definitely a victim of circumstance here. And I don't want to hear the argument that Steven Spielberg, especially because Steven Spielberg was directing E.T. at the time. Yeah, and he was so contractually... To account either. It wasn't like he was jumping from... It wasn't like he was going on his weekends off E.T. and making a separate great film at the same time, you know? Yeah. Well, and the thing is, it's like part of the... I think I feel like part of the reason this question has will continue to come up with Poltergeist is because of the fact that it feels like everything you see, one of the pieces of trivia you always see about Poltergeist is the fact that Steven Spielberg was contractually obligated not to direct anything else while he was making E.T. So therefore, yes. he couldn't do Poltergeist. Oh, well, maybe that means he circumvented that because of, be, because of the fact that he, you know worked as a de facto director and just basically had Toby Hooper cover for him, which is bullshit. I mean, it's completely absurd. And the fact of the matter is you, this is Spielberg's first time out as this is really Spielberg's first time out as a producer. This was his yeah. first film where he was producing somebody else. Do you really think if it's a wise decision, if you're trying to set yourself up as a producer where you're going to give people carte blanche to make the movies that they want, is it in your best interest to run all over them? Absolutely not. Yeah. And I think that Steven Spielberg had been in the industry long enough at that point to know that as a director. Yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, you know, I just, like, look, I remember watching something on, I think it was the network, years and years ago. It was a, I, I saw it, I might have, I'm pretty sure it was on the e-network. And I heard that one of the things that happened was, um, and I don't remember, somebody on the cast of crew said this, uh, that basically, Toby Hoop, so there's the scene where the stake this is a steak. The guy grabs a steak. One of the paranormal guys grabs a steak out of the fridge. Yeah. And he puts it on the counter, and then all these maggots crawl out, and it, it's, he drops the chicken wing, and then the steak just gets overcome, and it turns into this big monstrous thing, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. I now whoever told, and I can't. I wish I could remember who told the story, but I don't. But the person said that Cooper went through the setup. Cooper directed it. Cooper was filming it and Steven Spielberg came in and looked at it and he said, this is awful. You need to do this again. Right. So as a, as a director at that point, as a first time producer, you know, who put out a number of quality films on his own, obviously he's going to want to put out the best project. His name's on the line. You know? Yeah. Is that Steven Spielberg directing the film? No, that's Steven Spielberg saying what a producer would probably say hey, we need to redo this. This isn't what it needs to be. It's not going to fit in well with the rest of the film. We need to up our game here and do this again. Now, does that mean Spielberg directed that scene? No. No, it's just it's, it's controversy for the sake of controversy, and I understand that some people love to dig into this, 
there are people, I've seen people go both ways on it. I've seen people say, hey, you know, it was all Spielberg. I've said uh, Spielberg direct half of it, Spielberg direct 60, whatever. I don't think that Spielberg directed any of it. No. I mean, he's directed scenes in some of George Lucas's films, and they're very open about that every time that happens. And George, George Lucas has directed a scene or two here in one of Spielberg's films. So, I mean, the whole thing is just controversy. It's like 40 years out now. It's like, give me a break. It's a great movie. Give Hooper the credit he deserves, even if you don't like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You know, did, is Steven Spielberg's DNA there? Of course. Did anybody say a word about this, about this same thing with, with Richard Donner and Goonies? Absolutely not. Oh, yeah. And I'll leave it at that. So. Oh, yeah. We'll get on to the film from here. I mean, you know, look, this is a script that started with Spielberg. Like, he and Stephen King wanted to do a modern haunted house. Now, King, sure. King eventually dropped out, but the writers came on. Michael Grace and Mark Victor came on, and... With Spielberg, I mean, this is the same thing with Goonies, where it's like, this story is from Spielberg. He had this idea, and I mean, it could be part of, part of this is because of the fact that this is one of the few writing credits that Spielberg has in his career. And so that's part of where it comes from, too. But the thing is, you know, yes, there is a lot that is Spielberg in here. I will say... Rewatching it uh, yesterday, um, the scare moments in this film are as intense as anything we see in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Sure. You know, and it's like, okay, so Steven Spielberg sees the howling, right? Steven Spielberg sees the howling, and that's why he hires D. Wallace to play the mom in E.T. Yeah. He then hires Joe Dante to direct Gremlins. Right? Mm -hmm. Gremlins is another one. And I've heard Joe Dante said that Steven Spielberg considers Joe Dante to be the dark side of Steven Spielberg, you know? Yeah. But again, if you look at, at Gremlins, like that whole town set up with the, the, the village and all that, that's right out of a, a Steven Spielberg movie. Yeah. So that's, the whole, that's the whole thing. It's... It's like the Poltergeist movie with, you know, Mogwai's running around. <laughs> yeah, and that's with another and, and, and that's another thing yeah. where it's like you'd never hear, oh, well, maybe Spielberg directed that instead of Joe Dante. No, no one ever yeah. says that. I Nobody, think that I think that I think that Toby Hooper was just a victim of circumstance here. I mean, I don't think even 40 years later, people discuss this, and I'm like, hey, just give the guy the credit he deserves. Yeah. You know, you're not saying this about Donna or Dante with those films. And let's face it, at this point, you know, I would say that not only is Poltergeist a, an established classic, but Goonies and, and you know, um, Gremlins are established 80s classics, you know? Oh, absolutely they are. I mean, Poltergeist, and Poltergeist is probably one of the best major studio produced horror films of the past half century. I mean, it really is. I, I think it's, it's, it's just legitimately great because of the way that it builds up this situation that the Freelings find themselves in. And the fact that you, you have moments of fun, you have moments of, tiny terrors like Robbie getting scared of 
you know, the, the lightning and thunder and all of that stuff. And the way that his dad played by Craig T. Nelson, the way he, the, the way he's like, okay, well, here's, here's how, you know, it's getting further and further away from you. And it's like, you build that into things. Then, you know, you have Carol Ann, uh, who's terrific in this, who the, the actors, Heather work is terrific in this film. Um, you know, you, you have her being the creepy kid in the, you know, the, the requisite creepy kid in this movie. But at the same time, it's like when she disappears, you feel that because of how well the family is established. And these are terrific performances in this movie. Everybody's great in this movie. And yeah. the thing is that I'm going to totally agree with you. The, the reason this movie is so effective is because they spend time establishing the family. Yeah. And you know what? You have two parents. They're, you, they're your 80s, typical 80s, fucking upper middle class parents live in a nice home, three kids, you know? They got a teenager and two younger kids, you know? They're smoking pot in the bedroom and about to have, you know, some fun. Yeah. And it's, it's like that's, that's your typical 80s parents. And you could tell the, the thing that separates this from so many other movies, even ones that revolve around them. It's that the Freelings feel like a real family. They mm -hmm. feel legitimately like a, like the next door neighbors that you, you would love to have. The nice people, you know, and they're just they generally. I mean, they come across as real people, and I think that's a testament to Spielberg's script, and that's definitely a testament to all five of the actors. They just it's, yeah. it's just and and by the time that things start to go south and get a little weird. You don't want, I don't want anything to happen. I don't want to see them die. No. I don't want to, because in your typical horror movie, you're going to have corpses. You're going to have people dying at some point. I don't want to see any people die. I and, like them. And the fact that this is a PG rated horror movie, first of all, blows my mind. I feel like they, they had to bribe the MPAA to get this away from an R, but I think the big part of the reason for that is that nobody dies in this movie. And no, that there, is, is remarkable. That is amazing. Because you never think that could happen in a horror movie. Most times people are crying when there's a low body count. Oh man, only two people die, blah, blah, blah. I will take a movie, a horror movie that's terrifying like this with legitimate people that I love as the, 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 uh, the cast against, you know... 12, 13, 20, whatever, against Halloween kills where 407 people get killed in a three-hour time span, you know? Yeah. I will take this because you have a legitimate... It, it's just, you know, the thing is that, yes, okay, so the MPAA back then was leaning toward creating the PG-13, which, let's face it, I haven't spent it made a couple of years ago. This would have been at least a PG-13. Right? Oh, yeah, Absolutely. They didn't have the PG-13. I mean, I'm sure that part of it was they didn't want to slap an R on a, a Spielberg movie that was going to be a summer release. Oh, yeah. Was <laughs> you know, was Joyce R or was Joyce a PG-13? A PG, rather. No, that would have been a PG movie because that was that was decade before this. That was like seven years before this. So it, it would be, I mean, it would have been PG-13 here. It would have been PG-13 oh, yeah. now. 
But yeah, it, it, yeah. it was a PG movie at the time. So I think that because it's Spielberg, they were probably able to get away with a lot more. But also, you know, this is not a movie that really... There's a couple scenes that are pretty, you know, like the scene with the steak I was talking about. And then I think the most horrifying part is the guy having the, you know, the ghost of obviously the guy in the moment he sees the steak and then he starts peeling his face yeah. off, which yeah. is just disgusting. Yeah, I forgot that yeah. scene in this movie. <laughs> But, you know, it's not really it's not really one of those that is based on, you know, gore. And there are some effects here that are really, really good. Mm-hmm. You know, and again, I think that it's it's more creepy than it is. Well, it's definitely more creepy than it is gory. Yeah. I mean, you get some small things in the pool at the end that are kind of kind of gross. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, well, and, and the thing is, it's like with the exception of that scene in the uh, mirror, um this movie really doesn't trade in violence. Like really, even, even, even when the scary stuff is happening, you don't see, there's not a whole lot of people being thrown around or, you know, having to bandage up cuts and stuff like that after, after, after the horror happens. I mean, it's so much of it is supernatural. So much of it is showing you something that is, going to creep you the hell out and it's this is you know and yes this is a very different movie from texas chainsaw massacre but it's very much a movie from the director of texas chainsaw massacre because of the fact that what makes texas chainsaw massacre so effective is just how blunt force intense it each of those moments with leatherface is and the fact that, and whether you're talking about the sound design, whether you're talking about the cinematography, whether you're talking about the actions, you see that in the set pieces in Poltergeist. And that's where the whole, the whole idea of that controversy is absurd because of the fact that it's like, this is Toby Hooper. This is a Toby Hooper movie. I mean, even if you look at the Funhouse, which is, which he did the year before, which is not a great movie, but you can see a through line from both of those movies to this one. I like the fact that this movie is plumb in the middle between Texas Chainsaw and Texas Chainsaw 2 because it's... (laughs) If you look at it from this lens, Texas Chainsaw and Texas Chainsaw 2 are also movies about family. Mm-hmm. Now it's a kind of a ballistic family. Yeah. <laughs> a whole different type of family. <laughs> a little warped out from the feelings, but I like that. It's a whole different take on family here. But it has that through line as well. That's interesting to me. Yeah. No, that is that is interesting. I'll admit I haven't watched Texas Chainsaw 2. You know, I, I think the only other I mean the only other Texas Chainsaw movies we I've seen are the two thousand three movie and the two thousand eight or the movie we talked about earlier this year besides the original but the movie um, we eviscerated yes yeah but now i mean it's it's you know and and the thing is there are definitely some hooper movies after this that i do want to see i want to see life force at some point i want to see invaders invader from mars i want to see those you know and i do i've heard some wild things about texas chainsaw too so i'm i'm really kind of curious to see that one at some point 
I was speaking about movies that I saw on cable when I was a kid. So I saw the first experience I ever had with that Texas Chainsaw franchise was the Texas Chainsaw 2. Okay. Because I remember Wednesday night, it was in the middle of the week, it was a school night, and I should have been to bed. And I came on HBO, and I watched it. <laughs> and I was like, holy, like, what the hell did I just watch? <laughs> it's, it's a whole different world because it, 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 they take it, it they take the basic family and it's instead of going straight because Hooper had exactly the right approach on this instead of just making another you know like scary like you know visceral like gutter based you know low low brow you know horror flick he went the exact opposite made a black comedy and it is brilliant black comedy <laughs> Yeah, I mean, but yeah, so the feeling. I mean, the fact that nobody dies in a movie directed by a horror movie directed by Toby Hooper, that that's impressive. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think you know, it's like you you and I kind of had a uh, discussion about how you know how how people or I brought up the fact that it's like I wonder. I kind of jokingly brought up the fact that you know maybe the fact that they kill a are trying to kill a dog in the opening scene of the Thing is part of the reason why audiences were kind of turned off by that because of the fact that there's obviously that trope of you know if you kill the dog in a movie you've lost the audience you know i i wonder if that was i mean obviously it had to be a conscious decision on spielberg's part it's like nobody in this family can die like we cannot have anybody in this family die because of fact that you you lose your audience at that point and honestly it's a great call because of the fact that you know you you get the kids out of the way because of the fact that it's like you don't want to see them hurt this ultimately comes down to the parents trying to take care of their own and especially with carol ann and it's it's just such a great it's such a great choice to do that while also you know, keeping the stakes in this movie really high because of the fact that, you know, even even if you don't have those emotional, you have these emotional stakes, and that is so important and something that a lot of horror filmmakers really lose sight of, that you really should have some emotional stakes with characters now it's like i'll admit there and we've had this discussion there are some where i don't really care you know like we we talked about the 2009 friday 13th and one of the things i liked about that was the fact that you know you you just are waiting for jason to kill so many of these characters and you but it's working off of a different principle than this is and i i think that i think in this case being able to ground it in okay we're going to the this family will be okay but we're going to put them through hell first well i mean that's part of the thing that i've never understood like i know plenty of friends of mine who are horror fans they they they, all they want to see is the kills yeah they're coming in to see bodies get shredded you know me coming from a literary background and coming from you know a place where and I, you know, as a writer also, you know, someone who's been writing since I was basically old enough to pick up a pen, you know, I, I just, I don't understand the whole thing of, of having these cardboard characters. 
Yeah. Like, I don't want I, I can't invest in a movie where the characters are so paper thin that if you turn them sideways, you wouldn't see them, you know? Mm-hmm. I can't get into that. And I think that what you mentioned is great because balancing the creepy stuff, you have some really nice stuff in there. You have the stuff where, you know, there's one point where they're all sitting around and, and it's at night and uh, the lights are down and Robbie's asking about, you know, what's on the other side, and why the ghosts are there and all that. And I don't remember if, if it, I think Beecher Strait, the redhead, is the one who gives him the thing about it. You know, she gives him this whole thing about it. And she tries to make it sound comforting. Yeah. You know, you get that. You get scenes like that in this movie. You get, you know, basically, you get scenes like that. You get, you you know, the, I, Greg, T, Greg T. Nelson has a great reaction because Zelda Rubenstein's character at one point says, all right, I need what, I need to know which of one of you is the disciplinary. Yeah. Because, you know, you need to be stern with her here. And, you know, basically, basically, um, uh, the mother said, oh, well, I don't really do the punishments here. Craig T. Nelson's character says, well, wait a second, I'm not the bad guy, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, his natural reaction is, oh, why are you throwing me under the bus? It's a very human response. That's the kind yeah. of thing that you don't normally get in, in horror movies. Like a lot of horror writers just don't care about investing in those type characters. That's a very small thing. It's one quick exchange, but that tells you a lot about, you know, how, how he feels about the fact, hey, I don't want to be the bad guy. I love Caroline just as much as you do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And and Zelda Rubenstein is just absolutely fantastic in this movie. The way that she just comes in and it all of a sudden it becomes a complete it becomes kind of a movie within a movie when her character comes in. It's like, okay, so Dr. Lesh is, you know, she when she's has to go to Rubenstein's character, it's like you know that their things are need to be, you know, taken to another level. Yeah, and because I, Dr. I, Lesh basically says, hey, this is well beyond our scope. We're not yeah. going to be able to help you, but I have somebody who I think can help. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, even that, when she shows up and, and Craig T. Nelson tries to, he whispers like he's going to fool her and she catches him. Yeah. Like, that's another little great exchange, you know? Mm-hmm. No, it's absolutely terrific. And uh, this, you know, this is, this is a score by Jerry Goldsmith. And it, it's interesting because of the fact that, like, you and I have talked about our appreciation of Goldsmith when we were talking about The Omen. Um, I love that this very much is a Goldsmith score in a lot of ways, but it's interesting that there are a lot of sound, there are a lot of times where it really did kind of remind me of John Williams, too, almost to a point where it's, like I, I wonder if this was a case where it's like Spielberg would probably want John Williams to score this, but because of E.T., it's like okay, I'm going to have to get somebody else. Oh, I'll get Goldsmith, and Goldsmith does a tremendous job in this film. Oh, absolutely! And again, uh, I don't think I've ever come across a Goldsmith score that I didn't appreciate and love. He's just, well, we've talked about this before, too. You know, he's, mm-hmm. this is, I think, the same year, if not within a year or two, that he's doing the score for Rambo. <laughs> you couldn't get two films that were more far apart than Poltergeist and Rambo. Mm-hmm. And he does a knockdown job on both scores, because that's just what he is, you know? Yeah. 
I I also one of the things I also like is the fact that it's like the the supernatural aspect of this is not just about terror. Like you have the moments in the kitchen where they these where you know they're able to slide across the kitchen floor and it's like oh it's playful it's fun you you can't know in the back of your head it's like okay this is not going to be fun coming up <laughs> but at the same time you have that moment in that scene where it's like oh it's fun it's you and they're enjoying it but at the same time you you just know oh this isn't going to th- this is only going to get worse before it gets better <laughs> i wonder how many people rolled into this film in 82 the summer of 82 not knowing what the word poltergeist meant and knowing that this was a steven spielberg project and seeing the first half hour of this film and then not knowing what was coming and what they were getting into with the rest of this with the horror story oh i would imagine a ton this this movie this movie sets up the we we've talked about this this movie sets up there's a lot of chilling stuff at the beginning, especially with Carol Ann at the end of the broadcast day, which is always kind of creepy when it comes up in movies. But at the same time, it sets the baits on the family dynamic and the suburban life so well that once you get to the horror, it's like, oh shit, this is, that's right, this is a horror movie. Um, yeah, that's right. I, I forgot the image of that, of her in front of the TV and saying they're here. I, I forgot that was, I forgot this was supposed to be a horror movie, but, um, it's very easy. It's very easy to think that people would slide into this and kind of forget that whole thing. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden in the middle of it, wham. Yeah. <laughs> Cause when it hits, it hits hard. Oh yeah, Absolutely. The the third act is as well is as epic a horror sequence as I think just about anybody's ever put on screen in this movie. And it's one of those things where it's like, oh, you oh, everything's calmed down, everything's relaxed, it's like the evil's gone, all that stuff. Yeah, okay, you're sorry, you still have another twenty minutes. You're not out of the woods just yet. That but, was the one thing that always annoyed me about Zelda, Zelda's character in this, and she says this house is clean. Yeah, she's she's wrong. <laughs> well, she's also she's saying not. it with a creepy voice that we probably should have known better. Yes. Um, <laughs> she, she says this house is clean, and then the feeling's like, okay, we're moving anyway. We just need to be here one more day, and then zonk, boom. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's funny because of the fact that it's like, you know, it's all based, and one of the things is I, there's very subtle commentary here about commerce versus morality and capitalism versus morality. And, you know, this is, this is basically like a business. This is basically a community that a business is creating for its workers is what they're moving into. And, you know, you, you have that scene where it's like, they're outside the graveyard. It's like, Oh, we had to, you know, we, we, yeah, we had to dig up the graves and move them and stuff like that. And it's like, Oh, we find out that wasn't exactly true. 
Um, but it it really is great, very subtle use of social commentary by by the writers in in this movie to just layer that in as a big part of it. And I I wonder if part of that was kind of because I mean you know you you had the you have the scene in The Shining where it's like oh yeah I think this was you know built on Indian burial ground or something like that you know, for the Overlook, and it's like, yeah, that's, I mean, we saw what happened in the Overlook, that, shouldn't you realize that that's probably not the thing you need to do? Well, it's also about, it's it's this weird, it's this weird underbelly look at the American dream. Yeah. Because if you looked at the Freelings, okay, successful husband, right? Mother doesn't need to have a job at that time when a lot of a lot of couples are working too, you know, husband and wife are both working. She can stay home with the kids and cook and, you know, be a mother. Right. You have a beautiful house in a cookie cutter, beautiful neighborhood. Yeah. In California. Mm-hmm. You can't get any better than that. Oh, wait, it gets a lot worse because you're on top of grapes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's a really, it's, I, I've always seen it. Well, when I when I became a little more advanced in my thinking and understanding, I, I've seen it since then. As this is a critique of that American dream. This is a critique of, hey, you know what? We all want that three kids and the the Honda, you know, the the car in the drive, two cars in the driveway, the successful parents and all that, you know, tight family unit. But you dig a little deep under that, that might not be exactly what you think it is. Well, and I think it's one of the things that's kind of interesting with Spielberg at times because of the fact that, I mean, he, he's somebody who, on the surface, you look at his films, they, he, he kind of celebrates families, celebrates, you know, suburban life and just regular life, but always there's always something kind of pulling on it and creating tension within it. And... I mean, that's a, you know, you you look at the two movies he had out in this month. You you think about Poltergeist, you think about E.T., where it's like they're both doing that in their own ways. And I think that's really fascinating the way he does that with genre. Absolutely. And it's interesting you put E.T. And, and Poltergeist side by side. You know, the the... Elliot's family could be living a village over from what's going on in Poltergeist. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, he could practically be the freaking Freelings next to a neighbor, you know? Yeah. That's a much brighter... And even then, though, you know, they don't make a big point of it in But the fact that Dee Wallace is a single mother, she's a divorcee, she's got three kids, and she's running in a household where, you know, she's obviously a little oblivious because she doesn't know there's an alien in the house. But other than that, you know, she's doing the best to hold things together. And that's it. That's another side of the human condition and the American dream and the family, family unit in America, you know? Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And um, yeah, I mean, this is this is one of the first real times we've discussed Spielberg on the podcast because of the fact that um, he... You know, be, and it's partially because of the fact that I just haven't, like, there hasn't really been a moment for me to really start to talk about him. But, I mean, I, I think Poltergeist is, a, even though, yes, Toby Hooper directed this, he did a phenomenal job. Um, 
Spielberg is so much a part of this movie. And the fact that the ways in which he looks at suburban life is so much a part of this movie, you're absolutely right. Like, you know, the the family in E.T. and the, fa- the Freelings could very easily be next-door neighbors. That is how close in creating the suburban life that these films are. And it's just, it's a wonderful way into that discussion because of the fact that we're looking at, at the this time we're looking at a filmmaker who has had some of the greatest hits of all time and would have, have another one the next week when this one came out because E.T. came out a week after this. And he was he was somebody who was really dealing with really dealing in genres and dealing with genres in terms of how to portray normal family life in a way that people would want to see in an interesting way beyond just doing domestic dramas. And it's interesting that his, you know, his next film is going to be a personal film about his personal life. And it, it it makes it kind of fitting that, you know, in this this era, this is the first time we're kind of talking about him and uh you know, sort of what inspired him at at that age compared to what what how he reflects on his life now. Sure. I mean and obviously your perspective, you know, is cumulative and it grows and you know life experience grows and you're not the same person at 70 that you were at 40 that you were at 20. But I think that this summer of 82 catches Steven Spielberg at a very, at a sweet spot in not only his, his life, but in his professional life as well. Mm -hmm. So again, I think that Paul, the guy's next level stuff. I saw it in 82. I cannot believe that this just from the fact that you'd think they'd be competing against each other, I can't believe they released this and then a week later released E.T. Like, those films, if you're a Spielberg fan and you only got one and you go to one, those movies are going to be competing against each other, which I don't think they would do today. Oh, God, no. Well, I mean, I I, I was going to I was going to agree with you, and then a, I, it occurred to me, like, 10 years ago, Spielberg had Adventures of Tintin and Warhorse <laughs> out at the same time. So, I mean, you know, it's, but yeah, I mean, those ultimately, those are kind of very different things, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's wild to consider that this was out at the same time as E.T. I mean, granted, they're different studios. This is an MGM release, but versus Universal, but at the same time, the fact that Spielberg had these two out at the exact same time is just, it's breathtaking and kind of was the same thing a few years later when he had Temple of Doom and Gremlins out around the same time. The closest I can come with a recent example, and this is no, nowhere, don't, don't think I'm trying to put this on the level of Spielberg. I remember that Eli Roth's Green Inferno and that Knock Knock flick with Keanu Reeves and uh, Anna de Armas there, released within a couple of weeks of each other, which I thought was very weird at the time. It's just like, even if you're in different studios or whatnot, I don't think you, I would, if I'm running either one of those studios, I don't want to put Spielberg against Spielberg, you know? Yeah. That's just me though. You know, I'm not a mega million dollar uh, studio exec, but anyway, we can definitely call 82 the summer of Spielberg, I would say. 
Uh, well, seeing as though that E.T. became the the highest grossing movie of all time until all time, yes. like basically 96, ni- or really, I mean, Jurassic Park, but I mean, like really until like Titanic and the Star Wars special edition. Yeah, I think it's a fair thing to say. But uh, we we've we've spent plenty of time on Poltergeist. If if you haven't seen it in a while, I don't remember if I saw this in theater. I, I well, I know I wouldn't have. They wouldn't. Have, my mo- mom would probably not have taken me to see it in theaters. But I I can't remember if I saw it when I was a kid or not. Maybe in two and since it was PG, also it's entirely possible I did. But um. I do know that I saw our last film we're going to talk about as a kid, and I have very fond memories of it. It is George A. Romero's Creep Show. And I Written. still have the comic book adaptation oh, the Creep Show comic. of nice. Creep Show. And that was very exciting to find when I was going through stuff last year. It's like I knew I had that somewhere. Um, so yeah, Creepshow is based on, it's a screenplay by Stephen King, who is adapting a couple of his stories, but also creating some original ones. And it's basically an anthology. And this is from George Romero, who did Knife, the Knife, the Living Dead, and all of those movies in that franchise. And we decided to do this one last because honestly, it's just a ton of fun. And we wanted to end on a fun note. And I know I saw this one. My mom was a big Stephen King fan. So this is one that she, I I think she was, and the fact of the matter is it really isn't overtly, it isn't really intensely violent, which I think is another reason I got away with watching it. But um, it's it's I think so much of it is the tone, the fact that this is such a like wicked dark comedy take on horror is what makes this timeless. So this actually has a connection back to Toby Hooper, and I want to talk about that real quick first. So Stephen King originally wanted he'd seen George Romero film Martin, and Martin is a brilliant little film film that you know, a lot of people have either never seen or forgotten about. It's about a kid who is very confused. He lives in Braddock, PA. The town's falling apart, and he thinks he's a vampire, right? Mm-hmm. So there's, there's this debate back and forth on whether he actually is or not. I'll leave that to the viewing audience. But Steven Spielberg, uh, not Steven Spielberg, Stephen King was so impressed when he saw Martin that he wanted George Romero to direct Salem's Lot. So the thing is, George Romero was slotted to direct it, and then they decided, because it was such a big novel, so many things going on, so many characters and whatnot, that they wanted to do it for their TV production instead of a film. So at that point, George Romero, you know, all about gore, said, listen, I really can't. He said, it was great because my film is about a vampire with a small town. Stephen King's novel is about a vampire with a small town. Great, great connection there. So that was, uh, and then he went, once they decided to make a TV, he bowed out and it went to Toby Hooper. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no debate that Toby Hooper directed Salem's Lot, by the way. So that's good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the thing is that they had established a connection. So in, in 
81? I'm going to say Night Riders came out in 81. Night Riders is this really weird, really long Romero film about these guys who are basically they're Renaissance, um, they're Renaissance uh, actors, like at Renaissance fairs. They're a traveling Renaissance act, but they do jousting on motorcycles. And mm-hmm. it's a really cool thing. And then it's about power struggles. We don't really need to go over what it's about. But Stephen King, again, it's a cameo in that. He's sitting next to his wife eating a sandwich, and he's basically being, you know, your typical slob American. <laughs> I want to see the action. What's going on here? So when 83 and when 82 rolls around, that's when you get um, that's when you get Creep Show. I've always found Creep Show fascinating because George Romero's thing has always been to do social commentary in his films. So um, this isn't really social commentary here, but it is commentary on the human condition because basically Stephen King and George Romero put in what would have been one of the old um, anthologies from the 70s, Tales from the Crypt and Tales from the Dark Side and um, Vault of Horror and all those sorts of things that, that Hammer and Amicus films were putting out. And I think it's really cool because it's not social commentary here, but you know, it's commentary on the human condition. And basically, this is one of those deals where everyone gets their just desserts at the end. And um, yeah, you want to talk about something where there aren't many happy endings, even though <laughs> it's a fun, fun tone here. This is certainly the movie for you. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, nobody, nobody, nobody comes out well in, in this movie. But you know what? To a certain extent, you, like, like, you, like you said, they, they get their just desserts. Um, I, you know, it's like, this is, this is, this is very much inspired by the EC comics anthologies. You mentioned Tales from the Crypt. I mean, anthologies are, anthologies are kind of interesting because of the fact that you're dealing with multiple, um, multiple stories and you have to figure out a way to sort of tie them, tie them into one another. In this case, they use the structure of a kid with a comic book. And uh, that's that's basically the start. And the father, played by Tom Atkins, is like, "Oh, this will rot your brain. This will." And he throws away the comic book, and the kid is upset. And then we, and so he throws away the comic book. It's out by the trash, and it go. And it, the the comic book basically turns to these different stories. And the first one is Father's Day, which is. Well, b- before we get that that real quick, though, okay. So first off, yeah. Tom Atkins, star of *Season of the Witch* Halloween three. Let's not forget that. Yes, of course. But also, Tom Atkins is an abusive prick to both his kid and his wife in this. So it's not just the stories as the stories from the creep show where you're gonna gotta come up in. <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. Well, I love he has that line where he says because the wife is saying, "Oh, you don't have to be so mean to him. You don't have to hit him," and he says. That's why God invented fathers. <laughs> wow. <What> yeah. <laughs> um, and the first one is Father's Day, which is a has has a mood I, I put in my notes of dark humor and rich assholery, where we 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 see a uh we we get a rich family that is celebrating Father's Day, which 
with their Aunt Bedelia, who um, supposedly murdered her father, who kept yelling about getting his birth Father's Day cake. And all these years later, uh, the families gang together for the celebration. And, well, you know, father's coming home to, uh, you know, to, to get what he wants in terms of his cake. So here's the thing. I normally don't like... I normally don't like films where everyone's an asshole because it's hard to root for anybody in those. And I think that... I mean, I don't really feel any sympathy for the father here because he's a nasty prick. And all he does is, from what we see of him anyway, we see very little of him in the human. Yeah. We get to see plenty of him after he comes up as a reanimated corpse. Um, but you get the side characters because Warren Shook, I think, plays... I don't know if he's one of the relatives or not, but Ed, I think Ed, Ed Harris is married into this family, right? Isn't that yes. to deal with him? Yeah, he's married into so, this family. So he's supposed to be your vantage point here. You're seeing things from his point of view because he's brand new to this family just like we are. So, I mean, I, I, I shouldn't, but I kind of feel bad for Bedelia here because, you know, I mean, I'm not all for murdering old people. <laughs> but I could see where somebody would snap given the human condition. But yeah, nothing goes unpunished in this. Yeah. Except, except for Ed Harris's awesome dance moves, which oh, are God. right on par with which are right on par with my boy um Glover, uh Crispin Glover from Friday the thirteenth part four. Yeah. Because what's cool is you have the awesome dance moves of the eighties in horror movies. <laughs> And and we should so we should mention not only is it Ed Harris dancing, it is Ed Harris with a head full head of hair dancing. Oh my god, yes. When was yes, the last time you ever saw Ed Harris with a full head of hair? Probably nineteen eighty two. Yeah. <laughs> and I shouldn't say his dance get was unpunished because even he gets killed. Poor, he, poor he's, Ed. he's the first one after Amphidelia. Because Bedelia goes to the tombstone to hang out, and she's you know, yeah. regretful, and she's talking to her prick father and all that. And then Ed Harris goes out there later, winds up lying down, and boom, tombstone's going to crush him. Yep. Uh, one of the things I very much like about this is that John Amplis, who was in a whole bunch of Romero movies, plays the um, the the zombie version of um, uh, of the father here. Yeah. I interviewed John Amplis a couple of times back in the day when I was doing conventions. Really sweet guy, really nice guy, <laughs> and really talented actor. So mm-hmm. I'm always happy to see him and show up in a Romero film. Yeah, there. No, there. The the thing that's the thing that's great about these these performances is that they're all fitting the the actors. I mean, I you know, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, I mean, you for for a horror anthology, I'm not sure how much you want to say. Oh, there are some great performances. There are some actual great performances in this movie, and we'll get to some of them. But I, I do love, I do love how everybody gets the tone of this movie, and I love the comic book tone of the visuals in this movie. The use. Oh of my god, color. they're the best. The lighting, the lighting from behind, where it looks like it's you know, and you see a little, a little white halo around them, and the red lighting and the green. It's great. Yeah, it's it's because it really 
I know Ang Lee tried some of this with his Hulk film, but the way that Romero did it here, it really looks like comic book panels at points. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's that's exactly what he's going for, and it's it's just terrific. And it's always at the and it's always at the moment where, you know, the the ultimate comeuppance are getting delivered that you see that you don't necessarily see that with just the regular kills. It's always the ultimate moment where it's like the big reveal at the end that you get those panels from a comic book and it's it's terrific i love the music in this by john harrison he he does great work throughout this um this this movie i i mean i think some of my favorites of his are coming up later but yeah father's day you know father's day is a fun way into this world it really captures you know it really gets the tone that you're going to be um getting throughout here i uh, next up though is the lonesome death of jordy verrill uh king himself <laughs> plays jordy verrill who's a redneck farmer who has a meteor land on his property and i one of the things that's so hilarious about this watching it as an adult is his ideas of what striking it rich with a meteor would be it's like oh 200 bucks that'll do it it's like uh yeah you you could probably go up a little bit and think that would be good but you know <laughs> things don't really turn out the way they it, you would want them to for Jordy Verrill. It, it's great when you see his vision of things is at first, I, I don't know if it's a doctor or a, a professor or whatever, the guy's like, Jordy, you're a genius. And then the thing cracks and he's like, Jordy, you're an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I think it's perfect that Stephen King is the character, plays Jordy Verrill here because this is definitely, this is definitely Stephen King poking fun of himself. And probably the image that some hey, this guy is this chain smoking geek up in Maine, you know? Yeah. He's this real weirdo here. And he's definitely playing into that. And I think his like it's not a great performance by any means, but man, is it a lot of fun. Oh, it's it's, it's a ton of fun. It's a completely idiotic story, but it's a ton of fun. I love I love how it's essentially always stays on his perspective and the fact that even you you basically see as he's as the as he's basically transforming you you basically see that it doesn't really change him and you have this moment this weird moment where he's in he he's looking in the bathroom mirror and he's seeing his father and you have this moment with him and it's like this is such a weird silly story but it's 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 really just gets to how ludicrous some of this is and the, the surprising thing is if you look at this story this story is very lovecraftian yeah it's like lovecraft for dunces but yeah it's lovecraftian and i think stephen king was self-aware enough to know that hey mm -hmm. listen I'm gonna I'm gonna put together a, a, a Lovecraft type story with stuff falling out of the sky and weeds growing all over everything and consequences, but I'm gonna make it the silliest, funniest thing you've ever seen. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, it's a, it's, it's it's essentially color out of space. I mean, that's essentially it what it yeah. is. 
Yeah. <laughs> With Stephen King in, in you know, overalls. <laughs> The the difference the difference is unless you're if you're thinking of the Nicolas Cage movie from Color Out of Space, you don't get him greatly talking about alpacas in that movie. You yes. did in that movie. You instead you get Stephen King basically basically self loathing for like five to seven minutes because after that meteor cracks because of the fact that he basically kind of screws things up. And it's, it's, now there's not a lot to say about this. It's such a silly story, but I, I do love the, I do love the visuals and seeing him transform and to where at the end, when you, he, he basically looks like, he basically looks like cousin it from the Adams family, except made out of leaves and Seth hair. Yes. <laughs> I just, again, you know, like, I understand that a lot of mean stuff happens to good people in life, but I always felt bad for Jordy here, even worse than for Bedelia. At least Bedelia, you know, she was on the wrong. But Jordy here is just a, a simple country bumpkin, and, you know, he goes out, and, you know, he's just a simple guy who wants to have a happy little life, and every time that shotgun goes off, it's like, oh, man, yeah, <laughs> that's rough. But again, there's no other way out. There's no, no way he's, he's he's painting himself into a, a vegetable corner there, and that there's no way out. So yeah, it's funny because you know George Romero is considered a very progressive director, and I remember reading. So I don't remember if it was by him or someone commenting on one of the one of his dead films, saying, "Well, it, it's it's progressive, but is it really progressive? Because what's it progressing toward? You know." So it's like if you look at at if you look at Jordy Verrill through that, and you could say it's a very nihilistic little film. I choose to just look at it as, hey, this is a fun romp, man. Yeah. Stephen King's having a ball here. He's playing a, an out, you know, an outsized version of what people might think he is, and he's having fun with it. Romero's having fun, and you know, I just take it as that. But there is that other way to look at it. So I always find that interesting. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and that that brings us to the third story, which is something to tide you over, which is which for a while is one of the one of my lasting memories of this. It basically has Leslie Nielsen as a husband who is approaching who is who's approaching his wife's lover, played by Ted Danson. And we we see the evolution of that. We see what he does to get revenge on his wife and her lover and the way that that turns out and this is it it's kind of funny because of the fact that by this point we've seen Leslie Nielsen in police in uh airplane so we've seen the yes. silly side that he's going to essentially play for the rest of his life but one of the things that i think is so interesting about this is that you still completely believe him in this role. This is now granted it's it's dark humor, but at the same point, we also see the sinister in this character. And that's one of the things that makes this one work so beautifully. Well, people who grew up in the eighties and and you know, their first experience with him is either aeroplane or, you know, the the um, the Naked Gun movies, 
don't even realize that he had a whole long-standing career as a serious actor. Yeah. And if you ever want to see him play a total unlikable pick that's the exact opposite of Frank Drebin, watch the movie Day of the Animals, mm-hmm. which is an absolute prick in the movie. Uh, but the thing is that, you know, he's very, he's very upset because, again, I'm going to talk about something else in a second here, but he's very upset because he's, he's a wealthy guy, views his wife as a possession, and here's someone who's stepped in and taken his position. So what's he going to do? He's going to basically bury his wife and Ted dancing in the sand, and he's going to leave the shore to take care of it. Yeah. Now, the funny thing is, and I mentioned this to you the other day, if, for anyone who's ever seen Cat's Eye, the middle story in Cat's Eye, which is based on one of the King's short stories called The Ledge, is the same exact story. Yeah. It's a different circumstance because it takes place up high on a high rise. It's a rich guy who's upset that some some tennis you know pro is sleeping with his wife. He's going to um, exact his revenge by making the character that is this young tennis pro walk along a ledge on the end, uh, around, all the way around the building. And as he's going, he's going to dump water on him and blow horns and try to get him to fall off. Yeah. The premise is exactly the same for me. Mm-hmm. And again, it's done really well in both movies. I think, I, think I, I like it better here because I love zombies. So. <laughs> well, it's I... also interesting, as I mentioned here the other day, that you know, two of these five tales involve zombies. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing is that this is George A. Romero, and these are not your standard issue Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead zombies. No. In fact, we story the two types of zombies. Within this, um, within this anthology, the two types of story of zombies are different. So I always find it interesting when he takes on zombies, but he's outside the dead, the dead anthology, the dead um, franchise there. And I, I like what he does here. Well, we'll talk about the teleporting and the, the seaweed and all that in a minute, I guess. But what else would you like to say about this? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I love the... There, there are some shots in here when he's buried Ted Danson alive. You, you see kind of the point of view shots of Danson seeing the, seeing the tide come in. And I, I love those shots. I mean, I know it's, it's, it's very simple. Just, you, you know, you put the camera down as you know down on the sand as the as the tides comes in but i love that point of view shot it really it really leads into the terror of what we're seeing and i mean as you know as as fun as these move as funny as these these uh segments are right. they also do lean into there's still horror, so they're still creeping you out. And it's interesting here. I, I think it's kind of interesting here, you know. The TV is such an important part. We didn't really talk about it. The TV is such an important part of Poltergeist and the fact that that is where, um, you know. It's the conduit. It, it's the conduit to the other world. Here, Leslie Nielsen uses it as a torture device for Danson and his wife to basically watch each other so he can watch them uh drown. And it's it's really it it's really that's one of the things that always lasted with me is the way that he builds that slow burn into seeing how 
we get to see how the tide comes in and then you know he he's showing dance in the video of her which i have no idea how that sets up but you know i there there are a lot of things in this one that don't make a lot of sense in terms of the drowning but okay uh but yeah this is in and then the the way that this this the way that this turns, it you know, it's a very natural turn, but I love the sap and the deliver on this one. I'm pretty sure that there's a scene with Dancing when he's buried where a crab goes by, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. See, that's a nice touch. Yeah. I gotta admit, out of the five stories that we have here, this is the one that's really frightening on a, a primal level because, you know, the idea of being buried from the neck down and still alive and waiting for the shore to come in and drown me is absolutely terrifying. Yeah. No. And then, uh, you know, and then the, the way that I, you know, as, as unbelievable as some of, some of the images are, so like, I do love that image of, uh, Ted dancing. He, he's still buried, but he's underneath the water. And it's yes. just a straight-on shot. It's just such a great shot. And the thing is that Leslie Nielsen's character, if he wanted to, could just have picked up a gun and shot Ted Dance's character. Could oh, yeah. The same thing was right. Yeah. But no, this is about torturing them, and this is about lingering in them. This is about taking joy and watching them be tortured. It's, mm-hmm. His character, again, is such a prick in this. Yeah. But then we get to the comeuppance. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the comeuppance, Ryan. So, so the comeuppance is basically um, he he goes to get the equipment, and I mean I don't know what good it does him now because you would think it's all destroyed by the water, and uh, he he takes it back and he's like, oh well, where he he must have been pulled out to sea, which okay, um, and then basically the he he's. Laying, he's gang, he's relaxing in his house, and then the the zombies of uh, the seaweed, uh, the the seaweed covered uh, zombies of Danson and his wife come in for the uh, and and basically say the final thing that uh, you know, and basically do the same thing to Leslie Nielsen that he did to them, and. Uh, it, it's it's a it's a goofy ending, but it is such a terrific ending. I I, I love the voice effects on this on them after they get zombified. The yeah, voice effects are cool. Yeah, um, unfortunately, I'm gonna have to go here pretty soon. So, and I hate it because of the fact that we're coming up on my favor of this episode. But I do want to on this on this uh, this movie. So we're gonna speed through these last two, uh, starting yeah, with. Go right ahead. Hmm. Go right ahead. Starting, starting with the crate, which is, which stars Hal Holbrook is uh, Henry, who's a college professor who basically is who who's who's basically uh, beaten down by his his wife Billy, played by Adrian Barbeau, um, a friend of his. Uh, goes to investigate a crate that a janitor has found underneath the uh, underneath the stairs, and turns out has a monster in it. And so, you know, a couple people die. 
Henry sees a way to maybe get a w- get rid of his wife, and uh, that's that's essentially all there is to it. Uh, I Fl- Fluffy is one of the iconic creatures in movie history. We haven't really talked about Tom Savini, but his makeup effects are just phenomenal in this movie. Fluffy's great, yeah, absolutely. Fluffy's kind of like the um, the standard bearer for this flick when you think about it, as far as monsters go. So yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, this this is such a I I love the dark comedy. Holbrook is so Holbrook's basically a sociopath in this, and it's it's gr- it's kind of great to see him in that in that mode where it's like you you kind of empathize with him, but because of Billy, but at the same time you see what he does and how he is going to cover up for Dexter. And it's like, oh yeah, this guy could totally be a serial killer if he <laughs> just had the motivation for it. Sure, and then we get to my least favorite of uh, all of the the episodes, the the bug one at the end. Yeah, uh, but to to finish up with the crate, I... Uh, I love Adrian Barbeau in this. He, she is so, she is so wonderfully insufferable in here. And when the when he finally gets her down to the crate, it, it's just one of the great moments. I love the way Romero directs it. I love the ending. I love this use of storytelling to tell Dex, "Oh, hey, here's what happened," and all of this stuff. And it's like. Maybe it's not as simple as that. Thanks. I I wouldn't mind seeing a sequel to this where Fluffy gets out and kind of reigns terror again. <laughs> um, but yeah, the the fifth one is the one. I I'll be honest. Like you and you and I kind of agree that um, this is probably our least favorite. And it's start. It's they're creeping up on you, which stars E.G. Marshall, who's a billionaire who's locked away in a germ-proof room in an apartment complex, and he's afraid of cockroaches. And there are cockroaches all over the place, and it is creepy because of the fact that cockroaches are, in real life, creepy. Uh, this is this is one that, yeah, I, I always kind of forget that this one is after the crate um, because of the fact that the crate is just so memorable. I I always forget that this one exists to a certain extent because it's not my favorite. I mean, it's basically you basically want to see him get his his, his comeuppance is basically where we're at with this story. The the best thing I could say about this briefly and succinctly is I can shut Creepshow off after the crate and I don't feel like I'm missing anything. Yeah. I mean, E.G. Marshall was very good in this. I I enjoy E.G. Marshall. I, I enjoy the, I I enjoy the different some of the you know broader aspects of this. But yeah, it's it's one that it, it goes on a little too long, and it just is not something that interests me in in the long run. So I mean, it's it's kind of it's kind of hard for me to get get interest in this this one. But, uh, you know, and then we we do see Tom Savini. He plays a garbage man at the end who picks up the comic book. And, uh, you know, he's always he's always a fun presence on screen. And then we see the commitments with uh, Tom Atkins character when uh, we see the son has gotten the voodoo doll. And uh, that's that's group show. 
I, you know, I, I hate, I hate to rush this, but the fact of the matter is, it's like Creepshow is a, a, a ton of fun. I always love talking about Creepshow, and I always love thinking about it. I always love watching it. It's one that is probably the horror movie from my youth that I genuinely love the most. I mean, there are others that I enjoy, but this this is one that is just fun to put on. It it's it's just that right amount of terror, entertainment, and just good fun. And I I I love that we put the. I mean, you know, we're we're talking about 1982 horror. These three really are the top of the heap. I think. I agree, and I think that if you wanted to watch a Romero film that's just as well made as his other stuff, but not quite as gloomy and dreary, and you want to have fun with it, you want to see Stephen King having a ball with writing things, and you want to see an update on an EC Comics anthology, you can't go better than Creepshow. No, it's you a can't. Great, great film. I watch it every time I come across it, and it is a great way for us to end our discussion today. And on that note, I want to say thank you so much for having me on, as always, Brian. Oh, always a pleasure. It's it's always great to talk to you, and we'll we'll get back to uh, pretty terrible horror movies coming up. I'm glad we were able to talk to some pre talk about some pretty great ones today. I am too. Thank you so much, Brian. Mm-hmm. I'd like to thank Phil for joining me today, and it's always great to talk horror with him, especially horror like this. Um, I thank you for listening, as always, to the Sonic Cinema podcast. Check us out at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. There's going to be a lot coming up in the end of the year. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to these discussions. This has been a great run we're on, and it's going to stay that way for the rest of the year. That's it for me. Uh, thank you very much. And check us out at www.sonic-cinema.com.